This time around, when it comes to hydrogen, there is such broad commitment by governments and major corporations around the world, and you literally can go around the globe nowadays, mm -hmm. in terms of new projects and new manufacturers for electrolyzers uh, coming in, that um, I would say this train has really left the station. Dear listeners, welcome to this week's episode of Hydrogen Innovators, a podcast series produced by the Sanford Hydrogen Initiative, spotlighting bold innovators in hydrogen, all the way from academia to industry. You can find our podcast series, Hydrogen Innovators, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm Karen Becht, recent Sanford MBA graduate, entrepreneur and innovation strategist at the initiative, and I'm thrilled to be your host this week. Today, we have the privilege to welcome Professor Stefan Reichelstein. He's an Emeritus Professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Professor at the Department of Business Administration at the University of Mannheim. Professor Reichelstein, welcome to the Hydrogen Innovators Podcast. We're so excited to talk to you today. Glad to be here. So Professor Reichelstein received his PhD from the Gallup School of Management at Northwestern University. Um, prior to that, he completed his undergrad studies in economics at the University of Bonn in Germany. And over the past couple of decades, uh, Professor Reichelstein served on faculties of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, University of Vienna in Austria, and the Sanford Graduate School of Business. He is internationally known for his research on the interface between management accounting and economics. In recent years, and that's exactly why we're here today, Professor Reichelstein has also studied the cost competitiveness of low carbon energy solutions with a particular focus on solar PV and carbon capture, and more recently, hydrogen. Professor Reichenstein, let's get started. In a recent article, you mentioned your work over the last decade has been focused on the economics of decarbonization in general. We'd love to hear more. Can you elaborate? Sure. So in these studies, the typical question is whether a traditional energy solution, usually based on fossil fuels, um, how does it compare to a decarbonized energy solution? Uh, and when we look at the economics, we're typically interested in the unit economics, say the cost per kilowatt hour or the cost per kilogram of hydrogen. Those are the kinds of comparisons we do. And uh, as you would expect, the um, outcome of these studies always depends on both the location of where the technology is supposed to operate and um, the regulatory framework of the country and the jurisdiction that it's supposed to operate. Let's talk about clean hydrogen. Our listeners have a good understanding of the different colors of hydrogen. We've talked to many technical experts who explained the difference between blue, turquoise, green, etc. Now, as an economics professor, you're very well positioned to describe the cost competitiveness of the different alternatives. Can you elaborate? So there are lots of ways you could slice um, a question or a, a study uh, on the cost competitiveness of different colors of hydrogen. Uh, perhaps the simplest way to approach this is to ask if we have as our benchmark, as our incumbent, traditional gray hydrogen obtained through the process of steam methane reforming, how does that compare say to what people frequently refer to as green hydrogen, if it's electrolytic hydrogen, 
um, that is fed uh, by either entirely renewable power or a mix of renewable power and grid power. So there I would say for the longest time, traditional gray hydrogen has been has had the lower cost, but that is changing rapidly in many jurisdictions around the world. Uh, if in particular, say, if you look at Europe now, where the price of natural gas has gone up quite a bit, green hydrogen is actually becoming uh, increasingly competitive and has closed the gap in recent years. Fantastic. That's exciting. How would you, so we talked about gray and green, how would you compare that to the cost competitiveness of some of the other clean hydrogen alternatives? There we have, of course, a little bit the difficulty that we haven't seen that many deployments yet. So I think the, the observations and data that we have aren't conclusive yet. There's a lot of talk about uh, blue hydrogen, of course, but again, the number of projects that are have actually been brought to fruition and are operating sort of in a new steady state is still pretty limited. And what I just said about blue hydrogen applies even, even more strongly to turquoise hydrogen, uh, where you basically try to uh, um, avoid the emissions in the first place. Those things are to the best of my knowledge, are sort of just beginning to enter the commercialization stage. So we don't really have any good good observations yet to make a definitive call on that. Mm -hmm. It's still to be figured out in the, in the years to come. Great. In one of our previous episodes, we learned from Sunida Sayapal, the director of the Department of Energy, Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Office, about the hydrogen shot goal, right? Their goal to get to one dollar a kilogram of clean hydrogen in a decade. Um, you mentioned clean hydrogen is becoming more and more cost effective, but how realistic is this one dollar kilogram goal? So when the uh, Department of Energy came out with that a couple of years ago now, I think um, it raised some eyebrows because it was considered very ambitious. On the other hand, I think what we have also seen uh, in the interim is a lot of companies, a lot of different countries making a commitment to producing hydrogen. So our uh, recent studies that we did, uh, that I did with colleagues, basically suggest um, that by 2030, a goal of $1 per kilogram is ambitious, but I wouldn't call it far-fetched. Uh, so to make this a little more precise, I would say, uh, our numbers end us up somewhere in the range of a dollar thirty to a dollar forty per kilogram. Again, that would be without uh, uh, subsidies, so that would just be the so-called life cycle cost of producing hydrogen by electrolytic means um, in two thousand thirty. Ah, that comes very close in these, and that's that's twenty thirty. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, and that's it. Now, if we look at that cost of production, uh, we could say there's there's different levers, right? For cost production, you have the OPEX side of things where electricity cross plays a big role and then uh, the efficiency of your electrolyzer and on the capex side you have your uh, stack cost and then balance of plants across all of these levers where do you see the biggest cost reductions historically and, and projected for the future so in the um, in the studies that we did recently i, I mentioned uh, in response to your last question we're seeing um, considerable cost reductions on um, the electrolyzers themselves, uh, that is the upfront uh, capital investment that's required. 
Um, we're also seeing some movements on uh, the conversion efficiencies uh, of these electrolyzers. But you're absolutely right. The operating expenditure, i.e. the cost of um, electricity, is also going to play a major role. There, uh, sort of the studies that I mentioned have only assumed relatively modest improvements. So if you're looking at changes, uh, we're seeing the largest change uh, in our forecasts really in the cost of electrolyzers themselves. We'd love to deep dive on CapEx, and you have published great work on this. The electrolyzer CapEx experience curve will help us make green hydrogen cost-effective. Now, if we draw a parallel with other clean energy technologies, which are a bit further advanced, we could look at solar as a great example. I think 1970, we were at around $100 a watt, and now we are at below $1 a watt. Will we see something similar with electrolyzers? Where are we today, and where do you believe we, we will go? A dollar per watt roughly is, is sort of the number that people kick around for uh, solar PV for at least industrial scale projects there. But yes, I think there is good reason to believe that we're going to see similar learning or experience curves at work here, uh, which basically says you need to deploy, you need to build these systems in order to experience uh, the cost reductions. Our study that I mentioned uh, a moment ago does not quite put the rate of cost reduction as high as we saw with solar at mm -hmm. some point um, for reasons that we can uh, talk about. On the other hand, this is still a very uh, young technology. All electrolyzers, in particular PEM and solid oxide cells, as, as sort of the two recent additions to this uh, to this technology. So what this means, even if you have, say, a only a 15% learning curve, which is what we are estimating at the moment, which would mean that with every doubling, the cost would decrease by 15%. Yeah. Um, that's a little lower than what we have seen with solar and wind over the decades. On the other hand, because the technology is so young, if you think about how long, what's the time to doubling, how, how much calendar time needs to elapse before you get to that doubling effect, that's much shorter. So that's what makes me ultimately then still optimistic that by 2030, we're going to end up close to a dollar at least. Right, because it's still such a nascent industry, even a 15% experience curve uh, can get us down really fast. If, yeah. if the time to doubling is around a year, that mm -hmm. makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of the case in electrolyzers because there's not that many electrolyzers deployed up, up today. until recently. Yeah, yes. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, fantastic. Really interesting. So, besides technology development and getting down that experience curve of our capex, what else do we need to do to make clean hydrogen cost competitive? In one of your papers, you talk about the impact of corporate pledges. How does that impact the cost effectiveness of different technologies, and what role does industry and policy play in all of this? Mm -hmm. um, I think these net zero pledges um, are becoming increasingly important. They are certainly becoming increasingly common. And if these pledges are also accompanied, not just by a goal to be to achieve net zero in 30 years, but to also have a tangible uh, reduction goal, say by 2030, 
they effectively entail a commitment by the companies to make investments now or very soon. Otherwise, you won't get there by 2030 in, in seven or eight years. So those types of pledges are important because uh, frequently they mean that companies in a, a number of industries, be it steel or cement or other manufacturing industries, have to really invest in these decarbonized technologies today. And that can include then also uh, the adoption of electrolyzers on site to use the hydrogen in whatever production process we're talking about. Interesting. You studied a wide range of clean energy technologies, right? Renewables, storage, now you're looking at hydrogen. Many of these have gone through similar evolutions as the hydrogen industry is going through today in, 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 in some way. Let's learn from the past as we prepare for the future. What can and should we in the hydrogen industry learn from past wins and, and challenges in, in clean energy as a well? whole? My sense is that it's the path forward is going to be a bit smoother and steadier for hydrogen than it was, say, for renewables a, a couple of decades ago. Mm -hmm. And I base that optimism largely on the fact that this time around, when it comes to hydrogen, there is such broad commitment by governments and major corporations around the world. And you literally can go around the globe nowadays mm -hmm. in terms of new projects and new manufacturers for electrolyzers uh, coming in that um, I would say this train has really left the station. Mm -hmm. uh, while with renewables, if you, if you go back, there were a couple of uh, starts in individual countries, jurisdictions, and it took some time for this to really gain steam and universal acceptance. Um, I think from that perspective, hydrogen is in a, is in a better place. Exciting. So mm -hmm. You're saying there's a global kind of consensus and we're all moving forward. There's, you would almost be hard pressed to find a, a government or an economic association of countries nowadays that has not made an essential commitment mm -hmm. to, to having hydrogen be a significant part of the future energy economy. How large that is, we can debate, but uh, hardly anybody would say, no, this is not for us. Yeah, exactly. Um, you touched upon it briefly earlier. You talked about how incentives impact the cost effectiveness of hydrogen. You talked about the recent increase of natural gas prices and the impact there for gray hydrogen. Can you elaborate a bit more on kind of how the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act, European Green Deal, and also the recent developments in Ukraine plays out for, for hydrogen. Mm -hmm. I would say the, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, uh, was a major step forward for the United States. And I think it has uh, gotten also players outside the United States to think whether they possibly want to move their operations to the U.S. in order to be eligible for the investment tax credits that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act promises. Though we have to, I mean, the, the, the numbers that were dominating the headlines was $3 per kilogram in the, in the best possible case. Though we have to be also, I think, a little bit careful there in terms of how easy or difficult will it be for companies indeed to qualify for that incentive. Because one of the things that uh, really was not finalized uh, with this legislation is um, the notion of how to measure the carbon intensity of hydrogen, which um, would have to be in a certain range or would have to be measured in a particular way in order to be eligible for the maximum subsidy there. The European Union, uh, in terms of uh, the new Green Deal, 
um, I think is still struggling a little bit with the notion of what type of um, hydrogen to support. And I think the way I read it at the moment, the discussion goes on classifying something as green hydrogen. And if so, it would be eligible for support, policy support and subsidies. But uh, how exactly to define green hydrogen is, uh, in particular, could blue hydrogen be green hydrogen, is something that hasn't been finalized yet. The Ukraine war, as difficult as that situation is for the European countries at the moment, I think is also going to accelerate the transition away from natural gas as a feedstock for hydrogen production. That combined with the higher prices for allowances uh, under the EU ETS, uh, I think is going to, even in the medium term, um, going to have a significant impact in terms of accelerating uh, the move away from natural gas as a feedstock. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a lot of different tailwinds for the hydrogen industry today. All three go, um, yeah. Um, though, you know, Inflation Reduction Act was undoubtedly a big deal. Yeah, yeah. But it seems like what I'm hearing is that despite the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act is a major step forward, there's still quite some details we need to figure out to exactly how the hydrogen credit will, will pay out. Yeah. That brings us back to sort of the whole question of how do, you, how do you measure the carbon intensity of a product? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'd love to take a step back and okay. talk a bit more about your impressive academic career across the globe, I would say. You've been hopping around between Germany and the US, uh, Bonn, Mannheim, Stanford, Berkeley, across your career, doing research, teaching, and advising. What have you seen as the biggest differences between maybe Germany and, and the Bay Area and academics or, or climate research? And if there is one thing Germany could learn from the Bay Area and vice versa, what, what would that be for you? So I think I'd separate out the academic part from the um, uh, the climate tech part. Mm -hmm. um, uh, academically, of course, the biggest contrast for me is uh, when I'm in Germany and work for a German university, as I do right now, it is a public university, and the public universities have their constraints. Mm -hmm. uh, in contrast, say to a private university like Stanford, that's um, very clear. Mm -hmm. If I sort of look at the the whole discussion, interest, preoccupation with the topic of climate change, I think there are a lot of parallels between Germany and, say, California in particular. I think both. Jurisdictions have sort of been pioneers in the whole decarbonization process. Germany has long taken this very serious. There's a lot of hand-wringing about missing the climate goals and not being able to deliver on the Paris goals. At the same time, I would say California remains to be admired for its openness, willingness, and ability to change quickly. In Germany, while there is a general sense uh, how urgent this problem is, things simply don't move that quickly. And that at times can be sort of a little uh, frustrating. Mm -hmm. And I love how mm -hmm. you're bridging these worlds uh, in many ways. And I think we need many more people to, to do that. We'd love to move to a couple more personal questions. Okay. Um, a few months ago, I had the luck to meet your daughter. Uh, she's a bright investor and entrepreneur in climates. Um, and you wrote a paper together. Uh, the paper is called Transparency on the Path to Net Zero. 
And since very much that you're both devoting your careers to the fight against climate change, I'm curious to hear whether this impacts your motivation or in some way it affects the father-daughter relationship. It certainly makes for a lively uh, dinner, family dinner conversations. <laughs> no question about that. So actually, both of my daughters are passionate about uh, sustainability issues. My younger daughter, Julia, whom, uh, whom you just mentioned, came to all of this because she developed an early interest in the voluntary carbon markets. Uh, she also has a, a particular interest in the subject of carbon removal. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, in the current environment, uh, carbon removal can only be uh, competitive and profitable for a business if you access the voluntary carbon markets. So that's how we got talking and then also writing this paper together that deals with the whole issue of how these voluntary carbon markets uh, work and uh, how difficult or easy it would be for a company to offer certain types of offsets in these in the voluntary carbon markets. Mm -hmm. And does having two daughters or having two daughters working on climate impact your motivation on uh, working in a space? It's certainly, it's great fun to sort of um, look at this um, with, with your children, from mm -hmm. my perspective, as you would expect, I uphold sort of the academic side. I know the literature. Um, they know a lot more about what's going on in the field, in particular, my younger daughter, who actually works on it sort of professionally full time. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, um, yeah, it's a win-win situation as mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned. Professor Epson, I'd love to end with a question that we actually ask every guest on our podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I have this strong belief that we all stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us. And to use Isaac Newton's words, it's standing on their shoulders, what makes us see further. In that context, who inspires you most and why? If I can answer the question in terms of inspired me most, I would probably mention um, the economist Kenneth Arrow, who until a number of years ago served in the economics department here at Stanford. Uh, Arrow was one of the uh, most foremost economists of the 20th century, and uh, all throughout his life, he was focused on the problem of externalities um, and how to uh, how societies and economies can deal with the problem of uh, internalizing external costs in a market economy. And of course, Arrow saw very early. Uh, that climate change was just about the mother of all externalities. And uh, I remember a couple of conversations with him some 15 years ago, uh, when, um, from which I walked away fully motivated to work on this problem. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for uh, the great conversation today. Thank you for all your incredible work, the impact you've had in Germany and the US and hence globally on the economics and, and climate uh, ecosystems. And it was a, it was a privilege to, to learn from you today. Well, good to be here and um, all the, I wish you all the success with the Hydrogen Initiative here. Thank you so much.